Hey everyone, Dave here from Casual Shooters Podcast. Uh, just a couple things real quick. Laser app. Uh, on our website, I've added a new page. If you go to sponsors, you can see links to all of our sponsors. There's a link for Laser app. You can get 15% off with our code. It's on the website, but it's a great dry fire tool. It's a shot timer and recorder. So it'll record your first shot, splits, transitions. It's even diverse enough that you can set up arrays in different rooms so that you can have to move from one to another. It'll record everything. Amazing device. Check it out. Go to our webpage, casualshooterpodcast.com. Also, Hoist. We've got our discount code on the webpage again. Same page. But you get 10% off there, and we're talking IV level hydration for those of you shooting major matches this summer, even your local matches. It will help keep you hydrated. So go check it out. And also Gun Butter. There's a link for Gun Butter. You can get 20% off with our link. Uh, it's excellent lubrication for your pistols. Put a little on your lugs. The grease on the lugs of your rifle, good to go. All right, so go to our webpage, casualshooterpodcast.com. Go to the sponsor page. Links to their website right there, and the codes are on there for you. All right, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you later. Welcome to this week's edition of the Casual Shooter Podcast, your premier podcast for the casual shooter. This week's guest gave me a ride at Carry Optics Nationals in his golf cart. As I was walking up the hill on day one to zone C to watch the men's and ladies super squad. That's how we met. And that's how this episode was born. He is a GM and open running for the area six director and was range master one at carry optics nationals. However, there's a lot more to this guy. His past and his present are both very interesting without any further ado. Let's welcome Kyle Stevens. How you doing, Kyle? I'm doing well. How you doing? Great. All right. So, true story, we met in a golf cart. <laughs> we did. Yeah, you know, I was I was running up there, I think, to do chrono that morning. Uh, maybe, yeah. Was, yeah, I think I was doing chrono. And uh, I try to give people rides on the way up and down. I know that you guys can't always take your vehicles up there at CMP. So, it makes life a lot easier if... I just kind of pitch in and help out with the uh, the shuttle service if I'm going up there down or down. And and it is definitely greatly appreciated. Um, you were actually headed to Chrono, um, and we got into the conversation of, I asked how things were going, and you were like, well, we've got to reshoot a stage, but at least it's my zone. It's all good. So, yeah. Yeah, we had a, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, had a, a target that got hung in correctly. Uh, didn't catch it until the fourth squad. Um, you know, obviously the CRO felt pretty bad about it, but that kind of reflects on me as well. So I took it kind of personal. Tried to get as many people as possible together to uh, rush through shooters at lunch. Um, you know, we don't get a lot of time at CMP to to make up mistakes like that. So really, lunch is our only option. We can't start early and. Most of the time we're finishing late. So lunch is really about it. And finishing three squads over basically a lunch and a half period. Um, luckily, we had some people to help out and got it knocked out. Well, that's awesome. 
Now, were you able to get it done that day or just over the course of the other two days as well? Uh, we got two squads done on day one and then one squad done on the second day. Um, got the got the turn times down to about a minute and a half, um, which is unbelievably fast, but it's just not fast enough to run through, you know, 40 shooters or so. Now, Kyle, what we normally do is we have some questions that we ask of our guests. They're kind of icebreakers. Um, Chris was going to ask them, but he has disappeared. <laughs> so I will ask them in his uh, absence. Okay. First first question, what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie? Uh, <laughs> probably Blow, surprisingly. Uh, I think... I think it was just an all-around great acting piece. It looked like a crazy lifestyle. And the fact that it was a true story was even better. Drug movie, right? Am I right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's why I kind of laughed. As soon as you asked the question, I was like, that's going to sound terrible. But, I mean, it is. It was As far as a captivating movie goes, it was a pretty captivating movie. So it's one of those ones I feel like is, is somewhat timeless. You can watch it, you know, over and over again and, for me, at least, it doesn't really get older. Yeah, I do recall. I don't know if I've seen the whole thing. I think I've seen parts of it. So, yeah, definitely an interesting movie. Your favorite book? Book. Uh, I don't. I don't think I really have a, a singular book that's probably my favorite. I read a lot of books. You can't really see it, but I got hmm. books on both sides of my uh, computer here. I got a whole another bookshelf out in the living room. Um, and now with Audible, uh, you know, I listen to basically books everywhere I drive every morning when I'm out on the boat. Um, I, to pick one would be almost impossible. I would say the genre, uh, I read okay. almost all nonfiction and uh, it'd probably be personal finance. Oh, okay. You like the drier books. I get it. Very dry. Yeah. I'm pretty boring when it comes to that regard. <laughs> we went from one extreme to the other. Crazy movies to super boring books. <laughs> oh, wow. That is, uh, that's kind of nuts. Yeah. Personal. Okay. All right. How many books would you say you have in that genre? This will know, this will tell us if you have an actual problem. Oof. Uh, well, let's see. I've got three complete shelves on this side at probably 20 books minimum each plus another shelf and a half plus my audible I don't know, maybe 70 75 books if not more wow that's a lot of books on personal finance now any of that investing or yeah, the majority of it, like obviously the you know the classics, uh, the Intelligent Investor, Walk Down Wall Street, uh, a lot of Buffett stuff, um, the the normal okay. stuff. But every now and then, like something comes along, um, Money or Your What Is It, Money or Your Life, I think is another one that was really good. Uh, Freakonomics, which is really more like business and personal finance. Uh, what else do I have? We got Biology was a good one. Um, I have a whole bunch of them. Most of them cover all the same stuff, but, you know, for the most part, if you can pick out little snippets here and there, it doesn't hurt to read. And generally now with Audible, I just put everything on one and a half X speed and get through it. And if I pick up stuff, great. If I don't, then it goes, it goes to the discarded pile. Wow. Okay. <clears throat> all right. 
Now, Huggy's favorite question is, who is your favorite superhero? Now, if you're not into that, then our backup to that is, uh, who's your favorite historical figure? Ooh. I'll take option B for sure. Um, <laughs> okay. That's a good question. I'd say probably Nikolai Tesla. Oh, okay. Uh, invented a ton of stuff. Gave the majority of it away for free. Um, you know, I don't think... I'm sure humanity would have gotten where it is now without him. But I don't know if it would have happened as fast or as widespread with, like, you know, patents and stuff like that, you know, being infringed upon for so long. Um I feel like he gave a lot of stuff away that really bettered humanity. Very interesting. Now, the next one, they don't have to be married together. It's favorite gun and caliber, but let's say you're a 1911 fanatic. Well, you, your favorite caliber could be 6.5 Creedmoor. Um, gun, I guess, would just be uh, 416 Barrett and Ooh. caliber 416 Barrett. Uh, if my if my math teacher when I was young and wanted to drop out of school would have told me that I could weaponize math, that I probably would have stayed in it longer. Um, I obviously chose a different path in life with math, but uh, long range ballistics has always kind of interested me once I got into it. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. All right, we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to take a little detour at this moment, because I thought I saw somewhere that. You've also been involved in some PRS shooting. I did. Yeah, I ran a, ran a precision rifle series match up until I think it was March or April this year. Uh, partnered with a company out of uh, out of Florida here, GCP Rifle Company. He kind of sponsored the match. I was the match director, the guy that kind of could do the behind the scenes stuff and uh, match flow, all that stuff. And Rick's just a phenomenal dude. He, he's one of those guys that most people I think would be honored to just be associated with him in that industry. Um, and so, yeah, I did it for a long time. That, I started in it kind of as like an off season thing. I, you know, I'd get done with nationals, Florida, it's hot as shit, even in November. So I'd come back and uh, I didn't want to run around and shoot guns fast. So I just go shoot PRS. And for me, it was the closest matches were like three hours away and Rick was going to him and him and I only live about 30 minutes apart. So it seemed like a perfect uh, opportunity to start a PRS match up here. And it, it, it blossomed. I mean, we, we took off, I think it, besides Altus all the way up in the panhandle, we were the largest PRS match in the state. Um, and I, I've always enjoyed it. The big thing was obviously getting out and doing it myself because as a match director, I don't like shooting my own matches. I think it's a disservice to to be there shooting while everybody else is shooting when I'm kind of the one responsible for making sure there's match flow, answering any questions, getting drinks. Uh, for a long time, we barbecued up until COVID. So we'd barbecue during the match and we'd serve food after the match. So I kind of did a little bit of everything and uh, didn't really allow me to shoot it as much as I would have liked. So, um, but obviously... Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, um, so what distances did you guys have to put targets out? Uh, so we ran it at two places. One of them was at Manatee Gun and Archery Club. We only had out to 600 yards, uh, which obviously limited what we could do. Um, 
So it was a lot of really, really small targets, tougher shooting positions, shooting from, you know, swinging mm. objects, stuff like that, make life a lot more okay. difficult. Uh, and then when we left Manatee Gun and Archery Club, we moved out to JTAC Ranch, which um, probably one of the best facilities in the state now. It's phenomenal. And we could go as far as you wanted. They've got a 2,000-yard range out there. So most of the time we kept it within 1,200. The mirage in Florida gets pretty bad, especially in the summer. Um, so same thing with being a good match director. You don't want the guys starting on the long range stage in the morning to have a significant advantage over the guys finishing up at 2 p.m. on the long range stage and not being able to see the targets. Correct. Now, I know here, typically what I find here where I live is in the morning, the wind is the lightest. And then between 10 and 3, the wind tends to pick up. Is Florida the same way? Yeah, and both ranges were kind of positioned interesting that they had sideburns and stuff like that. Uh, JTAC, not as much. Uh, we tend to be shooting into the wind more than anything. Um, the oh. biggest thing here wasn't really the wind as far as a competitive equity. It was. It really boiled down to if you were shooting after noon past 1,000 yards in the summer, it's like trying to shoot through, like looking through a milk jug. I mean, it's just so washed out that you can't make out the target. You can't make out your hits. Um, you lose the bullet trace, even with really, really good humidity, a good spotter will be able to see the bullet trace, but you'll never be able to see it in your scope. Interesting. Mirage pretty bad then I take it as well. Yeah. The, the humidity and the sun, obviously that, that water, that water vapor just kind of lifts up and, uh, you know, it's Florida. So we don't really have a lot of Hills here to, to elevate targets. So you're kind of shooting you know, never really more than four feet off the ground. And that makes it really difficult to get away from the mirage. Yeah. Okay. Too bad there wasn't like an elevated berm to shoot from, you know? Yeah, a couple um, down south, I forget what they call it now, but it was, it's been a million different ranges. Uh, Altair, then Tradecraft, then who knows what it is, Gator or something or other, I don't know. Uh, but it's in Immokalee, and they had an elevated shooting platform that was essentially three Connex boxes tall. And that got you up a little bit um, where we could shoot in the summer, you know, maybe out to a thousand, but you're still okay. really limited. It just it just gets so soupy that the, the biggest thing for me was I don't want guys to be punished just because they got on the wrong squad or the wrong stage to start. Right. Um, and I think... I think if you try to, as a match director, you try to eliminate all that stuff where you're essentially picking winners winners and losers based on conditions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I totally get that. One of the things you and I spoke about at Nationals was, I think you said it was about eight years, you had a very interesting day job. <laughs> yeah, I had probably one of the, the most interesting day jobs for a long time, when I was about 16 until I was 30. Uh, so about 14 years Fourteen um, with years. some odds and ends jobs mixed in. Uh, but I was a professional poker player. So that was, uh, it obviously was a, a pretty interesting career. That's why I was talking about, obviously, the, the math aspect. I chose a different role in life. But um, yeah, professional poker player with some with some odds and end jobs mixed in. Um, my My ex-wife really did not enjoy me 
waking up at noon, playing online poker all day till she got home and then leaving and driving to the casino and playing until sunrise. So she kind of gave me the ultimatum of, you know, get a regular job or I'm leaving. And so I got a regular job, hated every minute of it. Didn't wind up working out anyway. So I got to go back to kind of doing what I was doing anyways. Gotcha. Now you had also talked about, um, I think you said you played all more. Maybe I've got this reversed. You would play poker all morning and then study everything that you had done in the afternoon or vice versa. I don't remember now. Yeah. So a lot of what I would do is it, it, it spanned over so many years that obviously the schedules changed when poker was legal in the U.S. It was a little bit different because that's where the majority of the money was. So what it would basically be is I would play at night. Um, and you aren't allowed to download your hand histories until 24 hours later. So a lot of what it takes to become a really good professional poker player is you study not only your opponent's faults, but your own and how to fix them. So I would download hand histories 24 hours later and then study them generally in like the mornings, uh, late mornings for me. I didn't, I didn't really get up very early because I didn't have to. Um, but then as Time went on and uh, the U.S. passed a really stupid law that kind of banned online poker. Um, I continued to play for a while, but a lot of a lot of the U.S. games started drying up. So then I was kind of on like a European and Asian schedule playing around a lot of those guys that you just have to follow the money. So I would be playing early, early in the morning, like 2 a.m. to 8 a.m. essentially, and then you know, wow. study after that and then go to sleep and then wake up and go to the casino. And it was, it was an interesting life. I think, you know, the, the majority of my adult life, I spent probably averaging 90 to hundred hours a week doing something poker involved, wow. um, which is what it took, unfortunately, to kind of get to that, that level. That's a lot of hours dedicating. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was almost even... every waking minute, a very, very minimum of six days a week. Wow. Oh, goodness gracious. And you even mentioned that um, you were, I don't remember exactly, I'm trying to remember now, where there was a group of you that ended up catching some of the, the cheaters. Yeah. Yeah, the, uh, the ultimate bet scandal. Do you ever did you ever get a chance to look it up? You know, I did not because I didn't write it down, so I couldn't remember what it was. Yeah, so his uh, ultimate bet was was one of the sites. There was Poker Stars, Full Tilt, Ultimate Bet, um, eight eight eight. Now there's been you know there's a there's a bunch of them. Once you have a random number generator and a, basically a, a user interface, um, it's pretty easy to put together a, a halfway decent poker site. Um, so this guy uh, was Russ Hamilton. He essentially was one of the, the framework guys for Ultimate Bet. And when it sold to the Kawanowski or Kawanahowski or however you say the Indian tribe, um, the oversight committee or over the, basically the, the gambling site, um, he still had a back end like entryway to be able to see all the cards. So that's kind of where that whole thing came from. And there was, yeah, there was a group of us uh, at the time. 
it used to be only professional poker players. Now it's it's expanded to a much, much larger site, but it was on 2plus2.com. And it used to be professional poker players. We'd sit around and we'd talk and it was like-minded people. And we kind of started all wondering like, what the hell is going on? How can this guy be beating the game so bad? Nobody had ever heard of him. It was basically a brand new, um, a brand new username. For the most part, all the really, really good guys, we all knew each other. We avoided each other. Um, and this guy just kind of came out of nowhere. So we all, you know, we're, we're on heightened awareness as far as how we're all getting beaten so bad and, and to the tune of a lot of money. Um, and so, yeah, we kind of got together and you get a bunch of math geeks together and start crunching numbers. It was only a matter of time before we essentially proved mathematically that he had to be cheating. It, it, he was just so much of an outlier when it comes to statistical analysis that it's impossible for him to not be able to see the cards or manipulating the random number generator in a certain way. Or there, there had to have been some sort of cheating going on. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that's amazing. That's a pretty wild story. I can't believe, uh, as we talked about, I mean, his, his greed got the best of him. So. Yeah. Yeah. His, his the, the final one that kind of, we had, we had presented it originally, they kind of ignored our, our advice, uh, didn't really research into him at all. And then finally, you know, he was in a tournament. Uh, it was one of like the Sunday tournaments, which at the time on, on all the poker sites, the Sunday tournaments were the big money tournaments. And uh, he wound up beating a guy heads up, called him with just 10 high on a nine high bluff, essentially. So the other guy had nine high, he had 10 high, and he called, which nobody's ever doing. You, you don't call with 10 high ever. Um, and so that was kind of like the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And we were finally like, look, we presented all the data to you. We've, we've done everything we can. If this doesn't make you investigate him, I don't know what will. And so they finally did. They found out who it was, banned him. Uh, they got back some of the money, but nowhere close to what he had, you know, basically stolen from everybody. And uh, a lot of the pros that had lost, you know, cumulatively millions, um, you know, we got pennies on our dollar back. Wow. Hmm. And I'm surprised he's still alive. <laughs> What's funny is he's he's actually from Florida. Um, I, I haven't really followed too much in the poker world as, lately, no, not in the last probably six or seven years. Um, but he had come back to Florida. He was living in Costa Rica and he came back here and nobody really said, I mean, people recognized who he was, but if you disappear long enough, you know, it was it was online anyways, so not a lot of people knew who he was. Like, if I saw him face to face right now, I probably wouldn't know. I might recognize him. I might ask, but you know, he could just lie and say, I, "There's no way I could definitively say, oh, hey, you're Russ Hamilton.' Fuck you. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but when you start talking about people losing millions, you know, that's where people are like, "All right, this is this guy's got to go." So, yeah, and you know, we all had a pretty established general win rate. I mean, the, the best in the world, we had our win rates um, for the most part. Like a lot of people would call it bum hunting where we were going out and we were seeking essentially the, the softer players. We'd look for the guys that were, you know, had a very, very low win rate. We could track everything. Uh, at that time, the, the poker tracking softwares were really, really, you know, coming of age. So you could keep track of you know, what, who your opponents were, how they played, 
previous hand histories, if you downloaded them, um, you could kind of lump them into a style of player, uh, whether it was winning or losing, and then, you know, essentially play an expletive play style against them. Okay. It's interesting you bring up the tracking software because um, that's actually something I want to talk about with you later when we get into the whole area six thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. All right. I, I could probably talk for hours, but I'm sure the audience at some point would get bored with it. So we'll, uh, we'll move on Most to more. When I talk about poker, they get bored pretty fast. Yeah. It's fascinating, but yeah, I get it. Um, so what we would normally ask somebody is when did you first shoot a gun? Uh, I've been shooting a gun for as long as I can remember. Um, I have dual citizenship here in Jamaica, uh, which obviously helped out in poker. <laughs> um, but um, <laughs> my family was heavily involved in politics down there. So from a very, very young age, I, you know, I had to learn basic firearm safety. I had to learn a lot of defensive stuff just because with the, the political side, especially um, it's third world politics. They don't, they don't stand up on a podium to argue. They, you know, they, unfortunately rape kill shoot at do everything they can to get their opponent to drop out or or take them out in the process um so when i would go down there for the summers and stuff like that i was always kind of on alert um and then when i lived there when i was like my pre-teens um i'd have to be homeschooled and you know every every few years homeschooled so that i could avoid the the political backlash wow Interesting uh, time growing up too. Holy cow! Yeah, it was a. Uh, I, I look back on it now, and it, to me, it was completely normal. But it wasn't like it was. It was an absolutely <laughs> insane childhood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's definitely not normal. But I mean, it, it's not normal from what I know normal to be. You know, it sounds like it's normal for down there, but not here in the states. Yeah. Although with what just happened in, what was it, South Dakota? Uh, maybe it's getting that way. That's where the, yeah. uh, I don't know if you heard the 41-year-old male run over, ran over the 18-year-old. I, I did, yeah. And it, I think that comes with just the, the divisiveness that we've got kind of in this country. Nobody really wants to not even meet in the middle because that's the wrong term, but nobody wants to hear the other person's side and it takes a certain level of empathy to be able to like see things through somebody else's eyes and understand why they do it. You might not agree with them, but at least take the time to listen and understand. Right. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. People are definitely not willing to compromise. It's my way or no way. Yeah. Now, from what I read, it seems like you got into the USPSA by way of IDPA. Yeah, just one match of IDPA. Um, I was kind of in a, a weird transitional phase of my life where I was, you know, I, I had quit poker. I had gotten away from poker. Um, didn't really like it anyways, but I, I had gotten away from it due to some, some medical news that I heard and just decided to kind of just try new things in life. I had dedicated so much of my life to essentially becoming really good at a certain skill and it afforded me the kind of the opportunity to be able to do what I wanted for a while. And yeah, so one of, one of them was I was talking to friends and we were trying to figure out or I was trying to figure out what 
path I wanted to go down. And he dragged me out to an IDPA match about an hour south of me. And I, I've always been around guns. I've always shot guns, um, never competitively in that way. But I got there. I loved the people, loved the camaraderie, loved the sport itself, like, you know, running around shooting, doing all that stuff. I just didn't like their rule set. Um, so I was talking to some of those guys there and they basically said, well, if you want to run around and shoot fast and not worry about reloads and getting procedurals for doing reloads early and stuff like that, uh, you'd probably like USPSA better and had never heard of it. So looked it up, found a, a USPSA-ish club about 20 minutes from my house and shot there on a Monday night. And that was it. I was hooked. One match of IDPA, you were done shooting that one match of USPSA and you're in. <laughs> that was it. One. I haven't been back. I understand they changed their rule set a little bit where it'd probably be a little bit more fun now, but at the time it I didn't enjoy it. It was it seemed it seemed like just it was overly zealous range calls and I mean just very mm. silly stuff. Procedurals for dropping magazine, even though it was empty, but I had one in the chamber and I was like trying to explain it. I'm like, yeah, but you told me I start with four in the gun. Why would I go to slide lock? If I know yeah. how many are in the gun, I just count so that I don't go to slide lock because if you're at slide lock, you can't shoot back. And obviously, right. it's a game, not actual defensive stuff. So the rules were I got a procedural and I just didn't agree with it. Yeah, they've definitely changed a bunch of their rules. They had a bunch of rule changes this year too. So it's definitely getting a little better. So that's a good thing. Good for them. Now... So, so that would have been the same year then, because I know what, 2015 is when you shot the IDPA match. So was it also 2015 then you shot that USPSA match that got you into it? It was, yeah. It was the very next week. I went from Monday okay. night shooting IDPA down at Hanson Gun Range to Monday night in Sarasota. And yeah, it was, it was. Like I'm sure a lot of us did, I just kind of went all the way down the rabbit hole, started doing the research, started, you know, dry firing, started doing all that stuff. Um, I, I guess at that age, I didn't really want to admit that my eyes were terrible. So I shot iron sights for a few years and did very, very poorly. Uh, but as soon as somebody put an open gun in my hand, it was it was game on. Now, what what gun were you shooting with iron sights? Um. I had started with a CZ Shadow SPO1 and somehow just kind of wound up down the CZ rabbit hole where I went from CZ Shadow to then shooting limited with a, a tactical sport, the old school tactical sport. And then somebody, the only reason why I even shot it was because it was a CZ, it was a CZ checkmate and somebody put it in my hands and that was, that forever changed my, my shooting career, I guess. Okay. Now I thought I saw a post too that you put a dot on that. Is that what you shoot in carry optics? Uh so the the dot on that gun, so that gun was actually on my my Instagram, I think is what you're referring to. That gun yes. was actually my production gun. So it was the first gun that I shot in USPSA. Um, and when I became a range master, obviously you need a calibration gun. So I wasn't going to use an open gun. That just looks a little funny. Uh, plus, I'd have to change the point of impact, you know, on the dot every single time. That's that's too much work. PCC right. definitely unfair. I mean, as long as long as you're shooting 
the required power factor, it's fine, but people just kind of look at you funny. So next best thing was just cut the slide for a dot and put it on there. So I did. And so I shot that gun as a as an RM way more than I had ever shot it. I had never even shot it in a carry optics match. Uh, I actually classified with in carry optics with a borrowed gun. So this carry optics nationals was, I think, my second match I had ever shot with it. Uh, only the week prior or the, the Friday before I left for carry optics nationals, I just kind of did like a shakedown with the gun to make sure it would feed the ammo. And that was it. Okay. Also explains less than stellar performance. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now you, uh, I know you're in open and uh, what are you running in open? Uh, so I shoot for Axiom Custom Guns. Um, Art Jensen is out of Wesley Chapel, Florida. Guy's an absolute wizard when it comes to uh, 2011s. Um, I wish he was still building guns. Nowadays, he, you know, he started a machine shop on the on the back of building guns, and that's taken off way more. Um, oh. So he's kind of dedicating his life to that right now, not really building guns anymore, unfortunately. Um, but I've shot, you know, basically as soon as I gave up the CZ, I, I've been shooting for him ever since. And uh, I had recommended him for years before that, and it just seemed like the perfect fit. Now, what dot are you running on top of your your open gun? Uh, I run the SRO. Um, I played around with a bunch. Good I finally choice. had a Delta Point die on me a while ago. Um, and now, it, you know, I don't really care too much about the thicker bezel. Uh, as long as it works to me, it's kind of one of those, I'd, I'd rather put up with a little bit lower, a little bit worse of, a, of an image quality, as long as I know that I can show up at nationals and I don't have to worry about it breaking. Sounds uh, very much like common sense. Yeah. Now you haven't, I mean, really, you haven't been in the business of USPSA very long. And you've gone from novice to uh, an open GM, a uh, match director, yep. and a range master all in that short path. Now, how did you how did you get on that path and accomplish all those things so quickly? Uh, for me, it, it, I, don't, I don't want to say it was a, like a natural progression. Um, I think it just boiled down to, you know, we're in Florida. I'm, I'm, or I'm in Florida. I, I'm really, really lucky that the two clubs that were closest to me were the Wyoming Antelope Club and Hanson Gun Range. Uh, and then the next closest one was Shannon Smith at Universal Shooting Academy before he left. Um, and those three clubs, they're just, everything about the culture there is volunteering. And I think they kind of get that the sport doesn't exist without volunteers. So for me, it was just kind of a natural progression of, you know, shoot, and but you have to obviously help if you don't help the matches don't run so as i got better you know as a shooter i kind of just kept working my way through um you know the ro stuff i saw a bunch of stuff from a, a level two and level three match where i was outrunning some of our older ro's in florida so i was like well might as well help here i can i can at least stay out of their way and then it was you know stage efficiency things um so I became a CRO, and then from CRO, I was actually CROing a stage at uh, Classic Nationals three years ago, I think. And uh, Troy 
was my RO due to some scheduling issues. And uh, at the end of the day, we had like a ghost squad right before our last squad. And we were kind of sitting there shooting the shit. And he kind of not so subtly convinced me to uh, to enter into the RM program that year. Mm, okay. And now did you... Did you assist with range master duties then the next nationals? Yeah, so uh, it was classic nationals that like the year that Troy had kind of <laughs> persuaded me into it um, was I think we had classic nationals in like September, October. It was late in the year. And so obviously I you know took his advice, I applied and I, you know I was really fortunate I got Kevin Immel as my range master instructor. And, you know, my big thing was I knew that year I had already scheduled a bunch of stuff where I could only basically work one nationals. And generally they want you to test out the nationals, whether it's, you know, the one in the fall or whatever it is, but they want you to work nationals and then test out at nationals. So when I talked to Kevin, it was kind of a, Hey, you know, I want to do this. We have one one thing though. I either want to get it done this year at Classic Nationals, which was in April, um, or I won't be able to do it until Classic Nationals next year. But I need to know if I can get it done by April because if I can't, then obviously there's no sense rushing to get it done. And so he kind of right. told me, he said, "Well, you you know you might be able to get it done, uh, but it's going to be dependent on you." So uh, kind of fortunate where I can set my own schedule. So. I dropped everything um, and basically same thing, worked eight to 10 hours a day, five days a week to get all the book work and, and running around the country, running matches um, so that I would be ready for the board review at Classic Nationals. Wow. Holy cow. So that, that was even scrunched into a short period of time. Yeah, they, they told me, I think it's the fastest that anybody had ever gotten through it. Only second to, I think, Jody. Um, not that that really matters at all, but it was, like I said, it, for me, the biggest thing was Kevin was able to give me his time. You know, we, we dedicated a lot of time on the phone, um, through email, stuff like that. It was, it was, I'm sure an enormous amount of time for him because normally, you know, the RM program takes about a year to a year and a half for most people to get through if they, if they can get through it. Um, so you condense all that down into a, a three month period. And he had to work just as hard as I did. And, you know, I always thank him for that because otherwise I wouldn't be here. Right. Yeah, that's a lot of work for him. So it was nice that he matched your level of enthusiasm. Welcome back, Huggy. There he is. Uh, oh, thanks to be back because I'm telling you right now. Wow. Man, the work that I had to put in just to get back on this show. <laughs> I could well, hear you. you almost received a ban. <laughs> Man, I could hear you guys, and I'm like going, oh, I want to ask questions too. And so I apologize, Kyle. I don't know what happened, but I'm figuring this thing out. Okay. So I'm here. It's all good. <laughs> I struggle right. enough well, with technology, so I, I get it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Whew. Man, some of the choice words, it's a good thing you couldn't hear me because I'm telling you right now. <laughs> some of the words and language I was using, man, YouTube. You hear the words coming out of my mouth? 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> because I'm gonna tell you right now, YouTube and Facebook and everything would have banned us. <laughs> oh goodness. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'm so I'm back and I'm glad to be here. Uh I was gonna tell you, Kyle, uh you were talking about the WSOP, uh or yeah. WSP. I, I love it. I used to go out to Vegas every six months myself. Uh and uh, I used to play at the Las Vegas Hilton out there all the time. And I also played okay. online at the WSOP online also. So I loved it. I loved it until the whole, when you, and you hit right on it when you were talking about how the uh, whole thing happened where, you know, the U.S. stopped the whole betting and everything like that. Because I'll tell you, I used to sit there and play all the time. Loved it. Miss it, kind of, kind of. But. Yeah, I think I think somewhere along the line, some senator's son or something got a hold of a credit card and maxed yeah. out of credit cards. They made it like a personal mission to, yeah. to shut it down, thinking that it was it was, you know, I don't know. It's it's water under the bridge now. I'm kind of not so glad it happened because I probably would have wound up in the same path that I'm at now. But it would have right. been nice to squeak out a couple more years playing online. I had a I made a pretty good living online. Yeah, I did. I did the same. I, I made decent. I won't say pretty good, decent, and I had fun. I was hoping to be like you know uh, Chris Moneymaker and just kind of show up, you know, and win win big one year out of nowhere and be like that guy that came out of nowhere to win big. Yeah, so, right. so yeah, the Moneymaker boom was was interesting. Oh my God! Yeah, it was because you know everybody wanted to get in the game. Then they were like, "If he can do it, I can do it." You know, so. But uh, anyway, cool Dave, now you're starting to see. Um, you're actually starting to see a resurgence, not kind of in the same way as the money maker boom. Uh, a lot of like the YouTube streaming and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So mm -hmm. there's a lot of new people coming back into poker. Um, I actually had some old friends reach out to me to ask me if I wanted to get on like a coaching podcast. And I was like, mm. man, I've been I've been out of the game for so long. Like, I'll play a little, you know, maybe twenty to fifty hours a year at this point, just if yeah. I'm bored or something like that. But yeah, um, he said that there's basically a huge resurgence of people getting into poker now for the first time just because of YouTube. Oh yeah, yeah, I I believe that, and let me tell you, I it it, it was fun, but I think like you, I'm kind of glad I got out of it. At the at the point that I did. So <laughs> I'm glad the USPSA came around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Dave. Go ahead. No, it's all good. Uh, it's all interesting. So like I told them, we could talk all day about it, but I'm sure at some point the listeners would get bored. So specifically talking about uh, running for area director now, um, you are also a boat captain. You captain a boat for charters down in florida um and it's funny where you do that at my wife has friends right there in bradenton so when i pulled up the web your web page and showed her she's like oh yeah we've been there we've been there we've been there i was like holy cow i don't remember any yep. of it but i do remember eating at gilligan's so yep. not bad food <laughs> yeah, uh, that's that's like a stone's throw from where i grew up Oh, wow. Okay. It's kind of like the Turkey Tavern, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, 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 he, 
He probably hasn't I mean, hung out at the Turkey Tavern there by Frostproof very no. much. No. <laughs> Give oh, a shout, oh. Giving a wow. shout out to Turkey Tavern, the only place I know that has a dinosaur outside a camo built building. <laughs> it's one of those hole in the wall places. Yeah, it's in um, Frost. It's right outside well, Frostproof, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's twenty five minutes south. It's north something or other. It's that town just south of Frostproof, on the okay. southwest side. So I know where you're. I, right I, I kind of know where you're talking about. I haven't been to the the Turkey Tavern, but the uh, the Mexican joints in that place are incredible. Yeah, we didn't yep. get the chance to visit those, but I'm gonna tell you right now, we found the Turkey <laughs> Tavern, and that was it. If you see a camouflage building and it says Turkey Tavern with a T Rex out front, <laughs> every day for nationals, that's where we went. Oh, goodness. Probably, probably the best gator tail I ever had was right there. I'm like, well, I love it. It's because it's fresh. It came from the lake out back. <laughs> <laughs> probably so. <laughs> now, obviously, chartering boats as people schedule those, that's pretty time-consuming. Um, and the area director can be time-consuming as well now how do you plan on or how is that balance going to work um i don't think the balance is going to be an issue at all as far as you know the the time goes right now i'm generally well it's slow season right now so i'm i don't do more than one or two a week but even in the busiest of seasons i'm really only on the water four days a week um i do run doubles on those four days but I try to avoid the weekends. Uh, I've I've got enough of a reputation as far as a charter captain goes here that I kind of get to pick and choose clients. I heavily vet my clients before taking them out. Um, and you know, at the end of the day, I do it because I love it. It's not like I have to be a slave and, and bust my ass every day to to pay my mortgage. So I do it because I want to. And I, you know, if it, if it becomes too much, then I just cut back a little bit. Oh, okay. So well, I nice. have, you definitely are able to set your own hours then. So I have a question yeah. for you then. What's the myth yeah. about bringing bananas on a boat when you're going out charter fishing? <laughs> uh, it's just an old wives' <laughs> tale. There's a bunch of them, just like, you know, all, all the rest of them. It's, it's kind of a – I don't even know how it got started. But, yeah, it's just an old wives' tale. Don't bring bananas on the boat or you're going to get skunked. Um, but we've, we've proven it wrong <laughs> plenty of times. So – Okay. I okay. just wanted to you know, know because I went on you might even be able to get a, a banana. Uh, because uh I went on a charter boat fishing trip and my ex girlfriend brought in bananas and I did not have no idea and she brought them out of her purse and uh <laughs> she brought them out and the the um I guess the deckhand, I'm not for sure of the name, but he saw him and he was like, Oh my god, throw him overboard. <laughs> And he threw yeah. the bananas overboard. And the look on her face was like, what just happened? <laughs> so I think it's more of a uh I think it's more of a conversation piece than anything. It's 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 just an old wives' tale. But yeah, there are especially I don't know where you went, but down in the keys, it's they're really big about it down there. Uh okay. No, I was actually up in Moorhead City up in uh North Carolina. Okay. So that was, that was interesting. So I figured, hey. A charter boat captain, he would know the answer to this. 
Yes, he would. It's a good excuse if, if you can't catch fish, I guess, but <laughs> awesome. Now you, you definitely have um, business experience. Do you have any nonprofit or not for, for profit experience? I don't. So that was one of the things, you know, when had to have been probably again, two years ago now when it first got brought up to me that I should consider running for area six. Um, it was about, it was actually even before all the stuff with Foley, like the whole argument at nationals with Foley. Hey, um, that was kind of where the, the process began for me. Um, so the okay. business side, I haven't really had a problem basically during poker and after poker now, especially I just kind of start businesses to keep me going, keep me from going back. Um, so the, the for-profit world, I definitely do. And when it was brought up, you know, before everything a couple of years ago, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to spend the time to be able to do the research, especially considering the vote isn't until next year anyways, if a lot of my skill sets would transfer over to the nonprofit world. And I think I was able to do a pretty good job between books, talking to presidents of nonprofits, um, board members of nonprofits, stuff like that. We have a really unique nonprofit in the fact that our board directors are also area directors, like generally like the board of directors in a nonprofit, uh, it's like the executive director selects them based on certain skill sets that they may or may not have. Um, and you build a team around that. And in the nonprofit world, the board members are kind of the ones responsible for getting the money, right? So we've got a unique scenario in the fact that our board members are essentially, it's, it's a popularity based election. Uh, which makes it kind of tough mm -hmm. because you, you might wind up with some people that might not have the required skills. And I think that uh, kind of opens us up for some problems. And, I, you know, I read through some stuff like on your Instagram again, uh, January 13, you posted a picture from something. I'm sorry. Nope. Disregard. That's not what I'm talking about. It was January 13. You had a long post about you were going to run for area six director. And there was uh, yep. some very interesting information that you included in there, which I thought was pretty good. And um, some of the stuff you put in there was, you know, that you've been reading up about this stuff, especially where's it at? I spent time gathering and reading books on executive roles and nonprofit organizations. Now, I'm going to get back to the part about building a team with all different strengths. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But from the books that you've read and those questions you've asked, what, what do you think is the biggest thing you've come away with from that? Ooh, the biggest, uh, there's a lot actually, you know, the, the deeper I dive into okay. the nonprofit world and, and the structures that, should be there, the more I find out that, you know, if we have them, I can't find them. We might have the policies or something like that. But for the most part, it seems like where we're really struggling is not necessarily like a PR person, so to speak, but like crisis management, right? I, you know, that's one of the things mm. that I think every good nonprofit should have crisis management. It seems like we keep going from crisis to crisis, you know, sometimes dumping gasoline on it and then running away, sometimes you know, extinguishing it, whatever, but it doesn't seem like there's a, 
a uniform method of dealing with the, you know, certain things that happen. It could be the smallest thing that blows up into a giant ordeal. Stickers on porta potties, case in point. And, you know, it's. I kind of wish that um, we had <coughs> either a, le- a better legal team or a designated crisis management person to kind of deal with a lot of, you know, the stuff that we do on a day to day basis, so that it takes it away from the board of directors having to do it or the executive directors, and it's a uniform message from everybody. So yeah. we're having we're ha- hold on <laughs> we're having issues with somebody putting stickers on a porta potty. Yeah, you've been out of the loop, Huggy. Yes. Wow. Yes. Wow. I and have definitely been something as benign as that turned into a, a huge ordeal on the internet. It did. Wow. Wow. Okay. I've I've I, like you. I'm kind of like there's bigger things to deal with, but I'm like wow, stickers on a porta potty. Okay, and I think that's where the that's where the biggest disconnect seems to be, right? So if if you look at the board of directors and their role, their role is essentially for us, it's getting money, so it's the membership, which is good because the area director position kind of piggybacks right on top of that, but it shouldn't be a reactive type position. It should be a directive type position where we have a game plan in mind, and we essentially are moving forward rather than dealing with current issues. Like we should always be looking much further forward than we are right now. And it seems like every time I, you know, I open up Instagram or something like that, it's, you know, people complaining about this current thing. And normally that's not a problem. You're going to have people that are going to complain. You're going to have people that don't necessarily agree with you, but it's like we're getting sucked in to these conversations and taking away time that could be used to move the organization forward. Okay, I'm gonna have to give you, I'm gonna have to give you an amen on that one, because <laughs> that yeah. is right on point. Thank you. Now, earlier you were talking about uh, the tracking software in poker, and I said I was going to get back to that. In here, you also put some key lessons learned were ways to gather data through polling and tracking conversations. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so I wish I had a, uh, a, a easier way to do it, but right now it's essentially just a giant spreadsheet. Um, during my early poker days, before a lot of the, the mobile apps and that stuff came out, uh, I built a query searchable spreadsheet that I logged all my hours. So I could essentially track where were the most profitable games, whether it was like it's you know Thursday, 6 p.m., where can I go play the, the most profitable game? Um, and so I've kind of done a similar thing. It's it's, it's still kind of clunky just because I haven't spent that much time on it. Um, but it's essentially a, a query searchable Excel spreadsheet that tracks conversations, whether it's um, limited optics or the suspensions or, you know, what, whatever the, the topic is. It's stuff that I've talked about with people. Um, and I think as an area director, you have to you have to be able to, number one, talk to your constituents. But if you're going to vote a certain way, you have to have a measurable way of saying, these are the conversations I had. I talked to this many people. This is what a certain percentage of those people wanted. And ideally, you vote along the majority unless it's something that is going to severely damage the organization. Um, but as an area director, if you're if you're doing stuff like 
you know, voting on uh, divisions, division changes and stuff like that. That's something that should go out to the constituents. I, I, you know, I have my beliefs on what we should do as far as, you know, staying closer to IPSC just because, you know, I think that we are kind of, a, you know, we're, we're basically the, the grounds for world shoot. Um, but that doesn't mean that my beliefs are the only way. Right. But there's probably a good compromise in there somewhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of how we wound up with Optics and PCC was people talking about it. And eventually enough traction was there that uh, obviously the, the, they became provisional divisions and exploded. We made changes to carry optics from 10 rounds to essentially the 141 and a quarter millimeter magazines. And then it blew up even more. And now it's the single biggest division in USBSA. And I don't think we would have seen that growth without that division. Yeah. And it's not slowing down either. It's just continue to, continuing to grow. Now, polling. How would you implement polling for Area 6 or even greater for USPSA? So one of the things that I, I now, um, you know, Rick is able to kind of spin it up on the website now where we're able to do polling on the website. Um, I don't know if we have a way, I, I haven't really talked to him about it in probably about a year and a half now. When I talked to him then, we didn't have a way of separating out individual areas and where they're living and stuff like that. And it becomes increasingly more muddied when you get to guys that shoot in multiple areas. Like if you're kind of on like the triangle, right? You can shoot three areas in, in a weekend or two. Um, so tracking where people live, uh, I don't know if that's necessarily information that we wanna have, but certainly matches where they are and then sending out stuff. When you log into USPSA or you pull it up, we've got push notifications now on the USPSA website. So we just push out the polls to people. Um, but you're gonna play a very, very fine balance where you don't wanna do like mass texts and stuff like that. If we push too many polls, people are obviously gonna unsubscribe from them. And then it's, you get such a small sample size that it's, I don't know if the data would even be usable. Um, so it's, it's a very, very fine balance. And a lot of that stuff boils down to kind of one of the things that I want to do, which is, you know, kind of phase one, which is the, the, the whole organization is based on volunteering. We need more than just ROs, CROs, RMs volunteering. We need people, you know, HR people. It would be great to have like an HR guy to bounce ideas off of to make sure that we're staying in compliance with certain things. Um, social media marketing guys, stuff you know, anything and everything, if you've got a particular skill set and you want to help USPSA, I don't, I don't want to see why there's a reason why we don't have avenues for that to happen um, rather than just, hey, I want to work a match. Totally. I, I could not agree with you more. And I say that too, because one of my questions was, um, and this is where I wanted to come back to what you said earlier about building an executive team with everybody has different strengths. One of my questions was, but there's still only going to be nine of you and an executive director. So you're still going to have weaknesses. And then what are your thoughts on allowing members who have that expertise assisting? And I mean, you basically just answered my question. So 
And I totally agree. And the example I was going to use was the individual who wanted to, who was trying to bring it to the board's attention that the budget was headed in the wrong direction. Um, I don't know how he tried to approach it. So I'm not, uh, I, you know, I'm not putting blame on anybody here, but I'm just saying there are, when you have 34,000 members, there are some going to be some members out there that have the exact expertise you're talking about, whether it's HR, IT, or nonprofit, or accounting. You know what I mean? Like it's all there. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, 37, 36,000. I think I looked at it the other day. It was like 36,600 or something like that. That's a lot really? of people to pull from. Obviously, yeah. you know, you have to thoroughly vet those people to make sure that they're going to actually be able to help. Um, the financial stuff is tricky, right? Like we're currently hiring an outside C essentially a CFO to come in and, and do the books. In my opinion, that's, that's kind of an executive director job. Like I think we probably should have gotten an executive director with CFO experience or at least some C-suite experience, but you know, I, I certainly wasn't the one that voted on that. I'm sure she's going to put in the effort to, to learn, you know, the stuff that she needs to do. Um, but when the budgetary stuff comes to light, I think that's just going to be like one of those things, right? I think everybody kind of threw up their hands and said, you know what? We don't really know where to go from here. And there wasn't anybody really watching it. Um, you know, I had spoken with Gary years ago about the investments and stuff like that. And it was kind of like, a there was some, there was some weird investment stuff that I don't know if I would have done personally from a, a business standpoint, personal finances, absolutely. You can take some risks, but when you look at the market, the way that it is and trying to maintain funds for the membership, I don't think I would have taken some of the risks that he did. Okay. Um, yeah, it's funny. I, I even had a quote from what you had put up, but, uh, it worked out well. Now, what are your thoughts on live streaming meetings? I've been, I've been a proponent of that since this podcast started two years ago. Um, and I know there are some challenges with it, but again, I feel like what you said, you know, thinking forward, if we're thinking forward here, then at some point, I don't see the reason why in the age of technology that we're in, that we couldn't, the members couldn't log in through USPSA and watch a meeting. Yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, obviously, the, the hardest part about that is, is you have to have, which I think we do, like I think E-Men's going to do a really, really good job, but you have to have a, in a traditional nonprofit setting, right? You have to have a board chair, which is our president, able to run a meeting. And part of that includes the executive session and stuff like that, because you're going to have to have those. You can't talk about employee finances. You can't talk about certain things outside of executive session. Um, so a president that can run a meeting really well, where we either start with an executive session or end with an executive session and the rest of it be a hundred percent live. Um, I think not only in the times that we've got right now, is it a good idea, but I think it's a really, really good way to earn the trust back of a lot of people that are you know, heavily involved that are starting to get a little bit worried. Um, 
at the end of the day, I think the majority of the the youth, you know, our membership doesn't care. As long as as long as there are matches to go shoot, they don't care. But it takes the people that are willing to volunteer their time to keep the organization afloat and make sure that it's strong enough so that you know we can continue down the path that we've been going. We've had a really good run. Yeah, and I, I feel like you know we we're only getting I guess what about six the 7,000 that are actively voting, but how many more could we attract if they knew that with their membership, they could get on and watch a meeting or two. And then maybe that builds their interest where, you know, they can sit home and yeah, just watch the general discussion of the sport that they enjoy. I feel like that alone will drive more interest of those that are, less participating maybe all they do is shoot their local match and that's it and who knows how much they actually volunteer but you know if you get another several thousand out of that to out of 36 you know you get another two or three thousand to vote then you and participate more then you're you're building a better base and i think it goes even further than that right you get those people involved and they have a vested interest in the organization and the sport I think more people volunteer, the, the faster we can continue to grow. Um, you know, obviously we're at our highest membership ever, but that doesn't mean that we can't be 10 times what we are right now and, and really have um, a, a real impact on essentially the Second Amendment and how it's handled. I could see USPSA, you know, we've already got the for-profit side. Obviously being a nonprofit, we can't do anything as far as lobbying goes. But that doesn't mean that the for-profit side can continue to grow and use some of those funds for lobbying, um, especially now dealing with like the stuff in Canada where they've banned firearms, um, import, export, all that stuff. And the loophole they're trying to do is to get basically, you know, uh, Ipsic up there into the um, Olympics. And mm -hmm. so if it's, if it's on that list of Olympic games, there can be exemptions where you can essentially say, hey, I'm shooting, I'm training for Olympics, and you're able to own firearms, sell firearms, do all that stuff. So they're trying to figure out that loophole now. And I, you know, I think the more members we have, the more opportunity we have, and the more power we have as an organization. Absolutely. Because how many of those members are then, like myself, part of other 2A organizations? I mean, I'm, I'm part of more than one. I'm a member of more than one. So I don't volunteer a whole lot, but I do have a podcast that has a hundred episodes of shooting. So that, that brings every a little, little bit, bit helps. And I think that's yeah. kind of same thing with people finding stuff through YouTube all the time, people finding stuff through podcasts. I think it just boils down to, you know, exposure more, more that's out there, the more people get into it. And what I think we're, needs to happen, hence the, the PR guy, right, is a lot of the exposure that we're getting on some of the social media sites right now is bad. It's, it's negative It's negative exposure um, against the organization. And we don't really have a way to combat that right now. And I think that having somebody in that role with that expertise would really help. Uh, yeah, and again, I couldn't agree with you more. I totally, I mean, you're making me want to move to Area 6 and vote for you. <laughs> you know, um, and, and it's and it's a good point that I just want to install is the fact that you know 
I actually went through a Glock Armors class and uh, the instructor was actually promoting uh, the shooters or the Glock, the armors in that class to join uh, USPSA uh, and, and learn how to shoot and then to entice the people that they deal with to join also. So it's actually was it's a good thing. Interesting. Yeah, I had brought something up to Foley uh, years ago that I would have loved to see done. It was like the old NRA grassroots days where they, you know, you essentially incentivized indoor gun ranges or outdoor gun ranges to sign people up for the NRA. I think that if we had somebody doing kind of that same job, going gun range to gun range, almost in like a sales role and saying, hey, look, you know, out of the $35 membership fee or have a $25 membership fee, like an initiation one, we'll give you 15, we'll keep 10, right? That way, at least there's initiative to get people in the door. And once they're in the door and they start enjoying the sport, I think that, you know, the attrition rate, if I remember right, we essentially keep 66%. So, and that could be wrong. I'd have to verify that, but I want to say it's 66%. So if we add, you know, 100,000 members, we get to keep 66,000 of them. That puts us over 100,000 total. And that's when you start getting into like real numbers of, of power, right? As far as what we can do from the Second Amendment front. I agree with you 100% because, like, I'm telling you, there's some places, there's even, like, a facility that's not too far away from me in, I'll just say, the city of being Manassas, that on the weekends, that place is packed with people that are waiting to get in line to go shoot down a lane. Just shoot down a lane. That's it. Yep. You could sit there with a booth and sit there and, like, have people sign up and say, hey, in just this area alone, these are facilities or areas that you can go to and shoot USPSA competitions. You can even have like a little video to show like what it's like. And people will be like, wow, that's what I'm like wanting to do. Not just stand here in a lane and shoot. Now I'm not saying that's, that's bad. However, it's nice to know what it's like to actually, if you got to shoot on the move and it actually brings people in that says, Hey, wow, this is a competition. I like this. I want to join. Absolutely. So I agree with you 100%. Yeah, and I I brought it up. I I don't know if they ever did anything with it, but there's a lot of those little ideas, right? It just takes little ideas like that. How can we get people not only in the door, but then create a culture of volunteering? And I think it goes back to like what I was saying with the whole, listen, you might not want to work a match. You might not want to dedicate three whole days of your, your paid time off. But can you help us like an hour a month with HR, help us like an hour a month with social media marketing or something, right? It should be a culture of volunteering, which is what the organization is. And more people equal more people equals less work for each person. Right. Yeah. And another thing, too, that uh, I've wondered about is, you know, I, I would like to be an RO, but the, the class around here typically happens in the fall and working a firefighter schedule. I don't have the availability to go to a two day class. It'd be nice if there were other options for me to be able to take the class. Even if, you know, maybe I take, if I can only do one of the two days, maybe I do the learning portion online and then do everything I need to do in person 
that one day, you know? Um, so maybe something a little bit more flexible for people to be able to volunteer. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, you're not necessarily required to be an RO to help at some of these matches. Um, a lot of times I don't know too many match directors, unless you've proven to be yourself completely worthless, they're going to turn people down. Um, if you have a good CRO and you don't, you have, you know, one other guy that's RO certified and one guy that's not a good CRO will be able to manage that stage and not have any problems at all. Or, I mean, I did it, I think at Ipsic nationals where I think I was CRO and I had two guys that not only weren't certified at all, they didn't know any of the Ipsic rules. So here's me, Holy a God. CRO in USPSA trying to do Ipsic rules with two guys that don't know any of the rules. Oh my and it was, God. You know, it was fine. We, you know, it was, it was managed well. Um, and I think that's where a lot of like the, the, the CRO I wish was a little bit harder to get personally. I don't think, I think we should have a higher barrier to entry than just a, a year of being an RO. Um, but the RO stuff, you know, I don't know how much less we could do because it's, it's all, even with a, I watch, I still go to sit on uh, some of those seminars every now and then, right? Like Dan Bernard at the Wyoming Antelope Club, he brings either Troy or um, Ray or somebody in every single year. And we always host a level one and a level two right around our state match. Um, so I still go in every single year. I sit in them just because I want to see how things are being taught now. Um, plus in the future, if I ever want to go down the road of becoming RMI, I can kind of say that, hey, I've been sitting in on all these meetings. Um, you know, come watch me teach a class and then go down that road if I wanted to. But there is a lot of information in that two days. I don't know how much more you could do where you have the interaction unless it was a one-on-one -on -one online course um, and then a group hands-on training, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Because there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of situational things that happen and especially as rules get changed more and more things change from a match perspective that people have questions about so it's it's very dynamic in the way that those classes are run it's they're almost never the same from one to the other at least i haven't seen even the same instructor doesn't teach the same class twice because things change with not only the rules but how matches are run how the forward direction of nroi is going and trying to kind of prepare CROs to be able to manage stages, not just, you know, have one more notch on your belt, so to speak. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, that all makes sense. So I get that. Now, getting back to where we were, a um, couple of other hot button topics. Uh what are we kind of briefly touched on this earlier with the sticker and the portageon what are your thoughts on banning and suspensions and when when do you feel they're warranted so here's this is actually the perfect example of this is why how the conversation kind of started with me running for area 6 it was directly after the vote not to ban tony calvin that's that's what got me into thinking about running for area six. Oh, I'm a statistical okay. guy. What happened? You know, he, he can say whatever he wants. That's impossible. 
What 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 happened was cheating, period. And the vote did not go the way that it should have gone. Now that's a perfect example, right? I think cheating, that's very cut and dry. I, I think that yes. there may Integrity. have been some some magic done with numbers and shown people and, and they were they voted incorrectly in my opinion. Uh, but when it comes to things like words on the internet, you know, people, you're going to have people that don't like the way certain things are being done. Um, the current suspensions, I don't, I don't know, right? How do you, how do you make a decision on that? No information has been released as far as what they actually did. It's kind of a lot of speculation. So I couldn't really say if those suspensions were warranted or not, uh, because just like everybody else, I have no idea what actually happened. Right. And I, and I think your answers are good because I think there are some times where, like you're saying, looking at statistical data, it's the evidence is clear. It's cut. There's only one option there. And I agree with that option. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think the option occurred, which, okay. Um, but there are some other, like with the other things going on, I don't know all the backstory. I don't know what all has occurred, but um I am definitely I, I am definitely of the opinion that the higher you move up in an organization, regardless of that organization, the thicker your skin needs to be because there are going to be things directed at you, you know, whether they're correct or incorrect, it doesn't matter. And you've got to be able to tolerate that and be the it's up to you to be the bigger person and and deal with the situation. Hundred percent. Yeah, you're gonna yeah. You're certainly, I mean, I, I plan on it, right? As I, I know I'm going to have to deal with some stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure people will not agree with certain things that I say. I, I, but I mean, it's like all I can do is I know that I am doing my best to better the organization. And I think as long as you can live with yourself and go to sleep every night, knowing that what you're doing in your heart is the right thing, most of that stuff just falls off the wayside. Like you don't really... I don't put too much thought into a lot of the stuff that's said negatively about NROI or anything like that. Because if you ever if you ever have a negative interaction with me in a match, whether it's a DQ or something like that, I'm always the shooter's advocate. Like I'm doing everything I can to keep you in the match. I'm doing everything I can. You know, if, if you shot a no shoot, you shot a no shoot. Sorry. Like I don't have a I don't have a way to overturn that. But at the end of the day, it's like, you know, I, I try I get in there. If you ever see like the way I overlay a target, I have a little uh what are those little uh, magnifiers that are like the size of a business card. Mm, yeah. Um, anyways, but it's a magnifier glass. So I pull out a magnifying glass. I mean, I get down there and I'm trying to do everything in my power. If you, if you hit it, you hit it. But at the end of the day, it's, I think it's our duty. If you're willing to step into those roles, it's your duty to do your best job that you can. So yeah, yeah I just bored him. He's gone now. <laughs> he's old he's probably got to relieve his bladder <laughs> um our the last hot button item <laughs> is what are your thoughts on locations of nationals and where it should be so i've had this discussion a couple times uh one of them with gary who you know obviously was our finance guy for the longest time and about the conversation uh, you know we uspsa looked at buying a range uh, to host, you know, nationals or whatever it was. Um, being on the back end, I know how much work goes into basically starting over every single time. One of the, the things that, you know, the internet loves to harp on is food, right? 
Well, every time you move venues, you got to find new caterers. And you can only try a caterer one time per nationals. And if you have a deal with them where they're supposed to serve food and they don't, it looks bad on the organization. But at the end of the day, you just know, okay, we won't use that caterer anymore. Right. So every time you move nationals, you've got to deal with all this, all the back end stuff, getting ice, water, pallets full of um, pallets full of targets, sticks, walls, all that stuff has to be built. It's not like we can just show up with a, you know, a, a semi truck and drop nationals on the ground. A lot of that stuff has to be done just from the the hardware perspective and then all the back end work with caterers, um, venues for the awards ceremony porta potties. There's just an enormous amount of stuff. Personally, I'd love to see nationals at a USPSA owned range. It allows us to pick a location in the US that we can build a, an amazing facility designed specifically around the sport, um, hopefully centrally located, like kind of like how Tulsa was. Um, and then you pick somewhere close to a bunch of hotels easy to stay, good food, all the stuff that you need to be able to put on a huge event. And yeah. we don't have to move it a bunch and start over from scratch every single time. So that's kind of divisive because some people want, you know, nationals to move around. But right. being on the back end and knowing how difficult that is, sometimes it just makes sense to keep it in one location and have a really, really good system in place. That way there aren't mistakes. Yeah. And I mean, I, I get the whole point, like what you just alluded to with some people want to spend, uh, share the wealth, spread it around every couple of years, move it somewhere else. But, you know, Yi Min was on the squad that I shot on at Carry Optics Nationals, and we had a few conversations about things. And one of them was this range in Ohio and the fact that it it still has some improvements that have to be made before june you know it's not necessarily yes. if you tried to do it today it wouldn't work so hopefully everything is done and ready come june well and that that's just the hardware stuff right so yes you have to have a range that can host it then you've got yeah. to have all the walls then you've got to have all the steel you've got to have all the two by four you know you've got to have all this stuff that if you're just shooting matches and you don't put on matches or work matches, you don't get to see a lot of the back end stuff. I, I agree. I mean, fortunately, you know, as much as people want to say that, you know, Jake doesn't do a whole lot, I'll tell you what, he kind of kept the organization together when the whole thing with Foley happened. Foley brought him in to run nationals essentially because uh, he didn't want to do it. And ever since then, I don't think nationals has been terrible. It, at times there are probably a few things that could have been better, but I don't think that there was anything glaring that was like, man, we got to, we got to get rid of him and have somebody else do this right away. And I've talked with Yi Min about that, about the whole transfer from, you know, Jake and Shannon kind of running things because Shannon has such a, you know, a good track record of putting on just awesome matches and then kind of bringing Yi Min as like a part-time match director for like the first year or two because there's a lot to learn outside of just, hey, here are the stages. Let's put them on the ground and run a great national. Now, I I think that, so the first year I went to nationals was 2020. And we had it underneath the pavilion there at Frostproof. But then 
21 and 22 at Talladega. You know, the 21, it was in the infield in that building. I don't remember what building, what it was called, but that was pretty nice. The one this year, pretty nice. But I look at what Ipsic Pan American Games just had, and I was like, wow, that is super impressive. And I'm, and it makes me wonder why, when you have over 400, 427, I think, shooters for a carry optics nationals, why we can't have something that nice. That was awesome. Well, just from the, the budgetary aspect, right? It's not difficult to look on any anything that's published and see that nationals loses money. So we've got the option, not really lose money. That's the wrong word. Um, it's Nationals is not paid for by the entry fees. Um, if I remember right, the average cost per staff member to get them to the match, have them work all weekend, everything like that, including the, the match fee, is about $1,250. So if you figure you need 100 staff, you can you can do the math. Um, mm-hmm. So just, just from the, the match fees themselves, you back out the sponsorship slots, you back out area director slots, you back out all the other slots. There aren't, yes, it's 400 shooters, but it's not 400 paid shooters. Um, then on top of it, you've got things, which again goes back to the, the back end. Uh, Frank at Universe Shooting Academy has done a great job with uh, Polk County Tourism Board. So all those venues, all that food, all that stuff, that's do- that's donated. The match doesn't pay for a penny of that. So, wow, you know, the Ipsic Pan American thing, Polk County basically said, hey, we'll get you a venue. We'll do the catering just like they did at the 2018 Nationals when we had it uh, nine days. We had nine days. But when you go to somewhere like Talladega and say, hey, guys, we're bringing in, you know, 500 people. Call it double the number because we're, we're, we're growing like crazy. We're bringing in 1,000 people. Talladega will laugh at you. Because how many people do they bring in for this for the Talladega Speedway every single year? It's got to be over a hundred grand. Exactly. So the tourism yeah. board and stuff like that, they could they could care less. So that goes back into if you're going to pick a nationals venue, it's one more thing, one more wrinkle that you've got to think about. Um, whether it's a, a permanent facility that USPSA owns, or if it's somewhere that we're moving to, number one, you have to have the range to be able to do it all the facilities, hotels, food, all that stuff. But then you also have to be able to work with somebody if you want these big events like what Frank has with the Pan American. And that's a lot of stuff that people, you know, they don't really think too much about. It's not like that that giant venue was paid for out of the Pan American budget. Well, and, and just to uh, <laughs> throw an actual number at Talladega Super Speedway, Capacity, 80 to 175,000 people, depending on configuration. So, yeah, even if you bring 1,000 people, that's a drop in a bucket. Exactly. So they're just not willing to help in the same way that, you know, maybe a a smaller county like Polk County is willing to help. How many people go to Polk County for tourism? Oh, I hear every year on Fox News, it's right at the top. <laughs> Might be a slight exaggeration, but <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. Uh, but that's yeah, the so... stuff, you know, going back, that's the stuff that isn't really relayed to the, the membership very well. Is like you just said, that's a 
a lot of people see what happens at one match and don't immediately correlate it to what happens at another match, not knowing that there's external factors that really change the way that all that stuff is done. Yeah, I didn't, to be totally honest, I didn't think of it that way. So uh, that's a good way to put it. On the outside, though, the appearances are like, wait a minute. They didn't have nearly the number of shooters. Why is their banquet look? It looks like a banquet, you know, not just a bunch of people who walked off the range 15 minutes ago <laughs> about to get awards, you know. It was like, wow, that's impressive. That's really nice. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, it was 2018 Nationals at Frostproof. We had that amazing facility. It was like right on the lake. Um same thing, right? Everybody sat down. It was actual table service. It wasn't like you went up and got your own food. They had waiters wow. come around and bring all your food to you. Uh, you know, and, and looking back on it now, yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Same thing when we were out in Utah. Utah had a little bit to do with that venue also. You know, we're right on the golf course. They would bring the food to you. They had those big tents that you would go around, the individual tents. Um, all that stuff didn't come out of the, the match budget because there isn't money there in the match budget the, the match itself is essentially a net loss we do it and the the money that is made up comes from the activity fees because that's the design of the organization gotcha all right now i want to jump out of the the bigger picture um being a board member back to area six and I'm going to flash something up on the screen here real quick. Hopefully uh, you it's know not. No, I am, I'm not oh. going to do that. Because oh. of what you were about to say, Huggy, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I know where this is going already. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever want to get rid of Huggy, now I know. I'll just add something to the screen. <laughs> so, Area 6 now, we're going to take what we just talked about with Nationals, and I want to shrink it down to Area 6. For the Area 6 championship, you've got Tennessee and North Carolina on your northern border. Then you have South yep. Carolina and then Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, and Florida. Yep. Now, do you, as Area 6, are you looking to find a central location or, again, move it around? So, structurally... Uh, the areas are a little bit different. They're, they're their own entities in the eye of the organization, um, mm -hmm. as evidenced by, you know, the, the recent stuff now with the whole um, nonprofit for Area 6. So up until this year, there was no organizational body or no, no business entity, whether it was nonprofit or for-profit for Area 6. Um, so what was happening is, I, from what I can gather, they were just kind of running it through the clubs. My general idea of what we can do in Area 6 would be essentially, I would want to move it around, but I would want to move it around for a very particular reason. Um, number one, I wouldn't want a, a nonprofit, a USPSA Area 6 nonprofit to own property because we change hands every four years. It would just create a, a nightmare. We don't have a, we don't have a, right. a nonprofit the same way that we do in USPSA. Um, but what I want to do is actually use funds from that match to build clubs. Um, we've got a lot of really, really good potential ranges. And I think having the conversation with those range owners 
to be able to develop a range that can host a much larger level two and level three match. Um, maybe even a nationals caliber match, because like I know Dothan, Alabama was just bought out. Um, I, I would really like to talk to the new owners of Dothan, Alabama, because they're willing to move dirt. They're willing to do all the work. They've got parking. They've got all the stuff there that kind of allows us to run a much, much bigger match. Uh, I know there's another one going up in Tennessee right now. I think it was the boy. I think it was the boy scouts one going up. Um, obviously the, the range in North Carolina that we've held uh, the area match at for three years, they don't have the, the range capacity yet, but they're in the middle of an awesome town. I think it's Salisbury. Um, so it's just a matter of talking to people and moving it around to build those clubs up because ultimately, in my opinion, the way that the area should work, the area of director position to work is you're building the area. That's kind of your job. Um, so using the funds from each area six match first year would be to build a club. Second year would be to give back to the area. Third year would be to build another club. Fourth year would be to build, um, or to give back to the area. And by then I'll probably be done anyways. The internet guys will have their field day with me. So <laughs> it'll move on to the next person, but hopefully it'll, you know, set a precedent of building the clubs in the area. Use the money that we're all kind of putting into this thing and build the clubs in the area to be able to host bigger matches. I like it. Okay. Sounds like you already have a pretty good handle on what's in the area to begin with. Yeah. Like I said, I've had a little bit of a, a head start. Um, fortunately, like I said, it, it wasn't a spur of the moment decision. It wasn't, it wasn't a, um, a reactionary decision to run. It was, you know, will my, and if my skill sets weren't going to work for it, I have no problem not doing the work that's required because I think most people don't realize how much work is actually required of a board member. Not only do you have all the area director stuff, but the board itself, any board, if anybody's ever been on a board, they know it's not just, you know, show up once a week for an hour. There's a lot of back end work that gets done and yeah. you have to have that time. Otherwise, don't even don't even put your name in the hat. Well, and that's why I brought up the fact that you know you are a a self-employed businessman. So, you know, how would you be able to balance that with area director? Which I knew you would if you had thought this about doing this a year and a half ago, then you've obviously considered it, but just you know, bringing it to the forethought. So we all know how you're going to do it. Um, yeah. There is a lot yeah, of, that's part that of the why it. I don't do the PRS match anymore either. Um, you know, I took a hard look at some of the stuff that I could offload some of my responsibilities because I knew going into it, the time that it would take um, for the area director position. And I wanted to offload some of the, the less important stuff. So the PRS match was obviously first on the chopping block. Um, I spent some time the first, after I made the decision, October of 2021, I believe, um, I sat down, talked to Bruce Wells, told him I was going to run, uh, really more out of a, like a respect thing. You know, he's, he's current area director. I, I told him I didn't want to be running against him. I'm running for the area. Um, so I wanted to have that conversation with him because obviously, you know, me being younger, a lot of times sometimes they, they see the younger generation coming up and helping as, as a negative thing. Like we're you know going to do bad things for the organization. They've worked so hard to build. 
So I wanted to have that conversation with them first and foremost. And then I immediately started going into, okay, what can I start getting rid of to be able to free up the time necessary for that position? Um, and so, yeah, there was a couple, uh, that one, um, I had a decent sized, uh, stake in a company that I was also on the advisory board that very, very fortunately I was able to kind of get out of, um, got out of the advisory board. It was a private investor came in and bought out all the, all the, the previous investors, the angel investors and stuff like that. So that was great. Um, and then offload the PRS match, offload, you know, little things here and there to free up the time necessary for the the enormous amount of work that it actually does take to be a good board director. Yeah, I mean, obviously you've already put a lot of work and forethought into this. So I like that. Now Yeah, it wasn't but it wasn't react like I said, it wasn't reactionary. And I think that's you know, I'm I'm looking forward to because I know that Ben Barry is he kind of put his name in the hat also. I know that he's actually submitted or he might not have submitted yet, but I think that he's gone and gotten the required signatures. Um, so I'm actually looking forward to it because he seems like a relatively well-spoken dude. Um, what I worry is that he he kind of it seems like he threw his name into the hat, like I said, based on the recent suspensions. Um mm, and okay. I, I don't I don't want Personally, I don't want somebody running the organization on one thing, right? You know, he's he's mad about, you know, some of his friends getting suspended, and I can understand that. But is that is that really the reason why you want to run for the board, or do you want to run because you want to help the organization? Um, and I've spent some time listening to his podcast and stuff like that, just to kind of see if he'd be a good fit. You know, understand where he's coming from, um, and that's that's kind of what I gathered from it is that he was running because of those suspensions, not because he wanted to help. And I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to talking to him at some point. I wanted to go to North Carolina to go talk to him and see what was going on because it kind of came out of left field as far as him running. Mm, okay. So more of a reactionary type of a thing. I added a question because you brought up a good point. You said you, you offloaded what you could, one of them being PRS. Now that brings up the topic of mentorship. What are your thoughts on, yes, it's about, this is a volunteer sport, but it's like there, it seems to me there's nothing set up to mentor people from the bottom up so that when Kyle decides, okay, I went ahead and did a second term as area director so that I could mentor a few people to get them up to a point where they can now take over and continue with how they see the sport going. So what are your thoughts on setting something up or, or doing that with people so that we continue that growth going forward? So that's a, that's a great topic because I think it's, I think it's universal across the entire organization from, you know, I want to start a match. Where do I go? How do I find that information? There, sh there really should be some sort of easy to find information on number one, how to get into USPSA. Number two, how to start a match. Um, section coordinators, sec I, know, I know section coordinators, they would give up the role tomorrow, but they can't find anybody to help. Um, mm. and, and same thing with area, all the way up to the top, area director, all that stuff. It's, it seems like they're, Good old boys club is the wrong terminology because it really isn't. It's it's more of a um, 
they only share the information if they want to. And I think the information should be available for everybody, right? Like I didn't even really know about the whole section coordinator thing that it was so <laughs> unwanted until I talked to Dave Jenkins down at Hanson about, you know, him supporting me for area six director and what I can do to help his clubs. And he's like, well, why don't you just take over my section coordinator thing? And I'm like, wait a minute, what? He's, you know, he didn't, he, he's kind of like a lot of section coordinators. I'm sure it's, it's, they got kind of put into these roles and they haven't found the next person that they want there. Um, so from a mentorship perspective, I think, what we do should be more widely publicized. Like I'm, I'm sure a lot of people now listening are probably just now finding out about the whole, you know, frost proof thing with Polk County putting up all that, inf all that money and, you know, getting the venue, doing the food, all that stuff. Like, where is that information? There's only a few people that really know that stuff. And it's guys that have mm -hmm. run nationals or have been a part of the back end of running nationals. Right. Um, that's the type of stuff that should be really, really well known and, easier for people to find so that they can come up with creative solutions themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Now, going back to you being a range master and being at nationals, I finished in zone a, which is where you were range mastering and yep my favorite Canadians were running one of the stages. Shout out to Mike and Lise Mahoney. Um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> but you had, you had driven by, you were going to another stage. And so you were focused on that and they were trying to get your attention. So I looked at them like, do you need Kyle over here? And they're like, yes. I'm like, all right, I'll go get him. So I walked over and brought you over. That's a whole other topic, which I don't know that we need to get into right here, right now. But um, it did bring up the question I wanted to ask. As a range master, what are some of those things that you would like to be notified about that aren't necessarily in the rule book, if you know what I mean? Yeah, it's a good one. So I think everybody's a little bit different in the, the range master side. Some people want to micromanage and want to know every little detail. Um, for me, you know, I try to have the conversations. Generally, we ask that the CROs be there the day before to do a final walkthrough. Um, most of the time, like I'm there three or four days before at a very minimum with the match director. We're walking stages, making sure we're going over written stage briefings to make sure that they're bulletproof. Um, there's a lot and then walking stages again and then doing written, written stage briefings again. And then, walk. you know, it's it, it's monotonous. Um, so when the CROs get there, I like to have the conversations with them, kind of see where they're at. Fortunately, I've been, I think I've RM'd maybe 10 level two or hires now. I think that, I don't know, whatever. Um, okay. so I've had an, I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of people and generally I, I know them pretty well. And if I don't know them, you know, we just have some conversations about general stage management and stuff like that. And if I'm comfortable with them, most of the time they are. I'll come around every now and then, hey, did you have any reshoots? Yes, what were they for? And I'll just, I'll put them down, right? Because if we have a bunch of reshoots for a certain type of stage or something like that, then we might look at like the lunch break. Okay, let's let's figure this out real quick because most of the time CROs will handle that themselves. Early pasting is an easy one. You just spread out the work, right? So the 
you have the timer RO and the tablet RO walking one way and you send the, the line judge over to the target that keeps getting pasted early. Easy fix. Um, DQs, if you keep seeing, you know, certain types of DQs, um, you know, you can add that stuff in on the stage uh, after the WSB, kind of like the housekeeping stuff, um, just to make people more aware of it. Um, but a lot of times I, I try to trust the CROs. I don't, I don't like to micromanage. I, you know, I don't mind having the information to log it and keep track of it. I keep track of every DQ. I keep track of every issue. But when I'm going around with the CROs the day before, we usually talk about procedural penalties. Where can people get certain penalties? We have the rule written down. That way, if somebody has a question about it, you can immediately reference the rule number. There is no like, hold on, let me get the rule book for you. Or it's this one, go look it up. It's We've already discussed this stuff, you know, a, a, an arm touching a wall outside the shooting area, 10 to one, same one as foot fault. Or was it a significant advantage because they were leaning on it, 10 to one, one. Um, a lot of that stuff is discussed well in advance before the competitors ever arrive. So I can just kind of leave them alone to do their own thing. And I've always said that the measure of a good RM is that you really don't get to see them a lot during the match unless it's for like an overlay or a calibration shot. Which we had one of those. We had a calibration. Yeah, somehow I got stuck with the all steel stage, 26 pieces of steel. How many? I, I yeah. think I did a couple of calibrations. Yeah, I'm sure you did. <laughs> I'm sure you did more calibrations than the other two range masters combined. <laughs> I did a few. Huggy but that brings up so, you know, what you were talking about where I was getting pulled away, that we did have some, right? We had two arbitrations. It's actually. First time I've ever had an arbitration in a national levels match. Um, and they were both pretty interesting. One of them was actually uh, due to your uh, your Canadian friends there. Uh-oh. Yeah. So I have, there we, it goes back to, though, a good range match will have that discussion. You know, they got DQ'd for essentially it was a um, it was an unloaded table start. Or sorry, unloaded yep. start, mags on table, gun in belt. And one of them said, uh, you may place your mags on the table. That's kind of an interesting one, right? Because you're really only supposed to give the range commands. And right. normally I will almost always side with the shooter in that situation. If I ask the RO or CRO or whatever it was, what they said, and I have a general rule of thumb where if you hear make ready, right? How many syllables is make ready? Two syllables, three if you're in the South. Yes. So if I hear <laughs> anything that sounds like two, three, or maybe even four syllables, I automatically overturn the DQ. It isn't even a question in my mind, right? Because if I was a shooter, especially if you're a foreign shooter and you don't understand, but you know the make ready sequence, it should only be right to be in the favor of the shooter. Um, but I asked her what she said and she said, you may place your mags on the table. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's that's way too many words. Let me see. So I went over and asked the shooter, hoping that he would say something along the lines of, uh, she said something I thought it was make ready. Well, he repeated exactly what she said. Mm. Okay. Well, then why'd you draw the gun? Uh, it's like, okay, well, she didn't say make ready. You drew the gun without the make ready command. 
Mm. So that one, I, I don't really have. So I talked to the competitor. We spent a bunch of time talking and, and trying to figure out not a, not a way to keep him in the match, but I'm, ex I'm basically explaining the situation. You know, I tell him exactly that. Two syllables, I'm automatically overturning it. Three, four, whatever. I'm automatically overturning it. And so I basically told him his options and we talked about them. And he said, well, I'd like to arbitrate. And I said, that's perfect. Went and got him a form. We did the whole arbitration process. A lot of people are scared to do that stuff, but I think it's the right thing to do in that situation is take it out of, take it out of my hands, right? And they didn't question me on that call or anything like that, the, the, the committee, and put it into the shooters, right? Do, do what the rule book says and put it into the shooter's hands. If you were a shooter and you heard what he heard, would you think to draw the gun? And unfortunately, the arbitration committee sided with me. Uh, and upheld the DQ, but it's the perfect example of stuff that should be done, especially at a nationals-level match where people travel from all over the country, spend a ton of money getting ready for and shooting the match. You know, it, it that's a good rule and a, a good system that we have where we're able to kind of put it back on the shooters to say, it's out of the RM's hands. Here's the arbitration committee. Would a, a group of like-minded shooters do the same thing? Would they consider that a make ready command and ultimately you know need to say they decided no but i liked it i like i liked having the the opportunity to have it even though it resulted obviously in a, in a poor uh outcome for that shooter right i have to say i like the fact that you actually used you stepped out and used the actual shooters other shooters to say hey what would you do in this 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 perspective being that I'm in the uh, fire department, but in the law enforcement division of the fire department now, that's one thing that we learned is that, you know, you have to put things in perspective of what the citizen would see in you doing something. So we had to put it in their perspective. So I like that, the fact that you did that, or and the fact that you put it in the shooter's perspective of like other shooters are like, if you were in this situation, what would you do if you heard this? So, right. Props to yeah, you. And it's, it's not that I did it personally. That's that's the rules, right? So yeah. it's in the arbitration rules. Right. You know, right. kind of what we do. And you can't have staff members. So it's not like the, the person, the only loophole in the system, in, in my belief, is if it's a stage being challenged, right? You still have an arbitration committee. Like if you want the stage tossed because it's an illegal stage. The only loophole that I found is that it's the match director that assigns the arbitration committee. Mm -hmm. So if the match director doesn't want his stage tossed, he just puts a couple guys in there that he knows gotcha. will side with him. But right. in real, you know, in reality, that's about the only real loophole. Most of the time, pretty much every time I've ever even seen one or been a part of one, the match director selects completely like arbitrarily. Both times we just went to the vendor area, or we, they went to the vendor area and went one, two, three. Are you RO certified? Yes. Okay. Do you do you want to help? And that was it. It wasn't they, nobody went out and hand selected anybody. It was three guys standing around talking. Right. So it, it worked out pretty well. One of them actually, the one with uh, the one we were talking about with D, the DQ. Um, it was weird. Like uh, Juancic wound up on it. Luigi. Uh, and I forget the forget the third person, but I mean, it's like you couldn't have gotten three more skilled shooters 
I'm watching, like they're they're surely going to understand the rule book because they're basically masters or higher. Right. Yeah. Right. Very interesting. Well, Huggy, do you have anything uh, written down that you need to ask, or do you ask all your questions? Uh, well, actually, you asked all my questions because uh, I couldn't get this whole <laughs> thing to work. I don't know what was going on in the beginning. I'm like, going, I'm sitting there, like I said, I was screaming at the screen, and it's a good thing <laughs> it wasn't being recorded because I'm telling you, YouTube, Facebook, whatever uh, browser you're using, <laughs> it would have shut us down completely. <laughs> And there's oh. no and there's no arbitration in that one. <laughs> no. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Kyle, is there anything more you want to add or anything you want to plug? Um plug nothing. I mean, the, the biggest thing is right, like I, when I made the announcement at the beginning of the year, like I'm I'm sure you kind of read in that post, the biggest reason why I made it so early was I knew I was opening myself up to a lot of the nonsense that goes on when you run for any sort of position. But the reason why I did it so early is because I want people to come and talk to me. I want to know what you want out of the organization um, from all levels, brand new shooters, intermediate expert shooters, all the way up to match directors, section coordinators, everybody. You know, I try to reach out to a lot of match directors and section coordinators to see what the organization can do better. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't hurt to share your ideas. There are like, my ideas with the whole thing with like the NRA grassroots for getting more members. I would love to hear something like that. Like that's the type of stuff that we need to grow the organization. And I think at the end of the day, the, the volunteer culture, if we can make it stronger, I'm all for it. I like it. Now it also looks like you have created a Gmail. What is it? Stevens for a six at gmail.com. It is. Yeah. Okay, I'll yeah, even Stevens post that in the so Stevens, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-S, 4A6, uh, F-O-R, 4A6. And, uh, or find me on social media or it, I'm basically at every single nationals. Fortunately, for the rest of the year, I only get to shoot. So I, I did my duty. I RM'd Classic Nationals and I RM'd Carry Optics Nationals. Um, so now I get to go and shoot the one that I care about, which is Open Nationals. Okay. Well, I will also put that, uh, I'll put a link to that email in the podcast notes so people can literally just click on it in the notes if they want. Perfect. Share your ideas. I'd love to hear them. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. I've appreciated our conversation at CMP and here tonight. Me too. Yeah. I'm kind of a fortuitous of event kind of running into you. I was, I'm sure we would have, we would have probably had this conversation eventually anyways, but I'm glad it happened when it did. Yeah, me too. It worked out very well. And hope to see you on the range again. Absolutely. I'm sure you will. Until next time. Don't be a little bitch. Yeah. <laughs>